And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Last week, Todd introduced this sermon series on how to be an anti-racist by using Acts 10 to show us that God's kingdom is made up of all races, nations, peoples, and languages who fully recognize the divine goodness in each other and who promote each other's mutual flourishing. A society where bigotry of any kind has no place. Given this vision, when Todd asked me to facilitate the Morning Book Club on how to be an anti-racist by Imbram X. Kendi, I didn't hesitate. But it only took me to the first chapter to realize that I was headed toward a period of deep self-examination and repentance. The reason for that is that although at times I have been very active in the fight for racial equity, especially in the field of environmental justice. At other times, I have remained neutral. Prior to reading this book, I would have considered myself not racist. Now I view myself as a work in progress. For according to Mr. Kendi, the times in which I was actively fighting racist ideas and policies, I was an anti-racist. But the times in which I was neutral, I was a racist, for I was, by my silence, allowing the existing oppressive racial hierarchies to persist. Note that the labels racist and anti-racist are not permanent tattoos. One person, myself, can be both a racist one minute and an anti-racist the next. For the terms describe what a person is doing or not doing in a given moment, 
not who they are. This way of viewing the issue of racism is empowering because it speaks to our ability to change. We are not permanently in one camp or the other, but can gradually over time, decision by decision, move from doing mostly racist acts to doing only anti-racist ones. It is also consistent with the biblical concept of spiritual transformation, where with God's help, we're moving toward more Christ-likeness. It was with this mindset of spiritual transformation that I set out over the last two weeks as part of the sermon series to explore the biblical record on neutrality. I was very curious to see what God thought about inaction. For remember, Mr. Kenny believes that you can be a racist not only if you say a racist idea or write a racist policy, but also if you remain neutral, but because by your neutrality, you are allowing these racist ideas and policies to remain. But what does God think? Does God view a person who does not stop or alleviate the wrong the same way as a person who does the wrong? Well, when I am seeking an answer in scripture, I usually begin with an ancient practice of scriptural reading called Lectio Divina. For those of you who are not familiar with this practice, Lectio Divina is a way of personally engaging in scripture by either imagining yourself as a character in the story that you're reading or by reading the passage slowly without any agenda except to see what words or phrases pop out at you, and then to prayerfully examine you know, those words and phrases to see what God is trying to tell you through those words in your present moment. And it usually ends with a period of silence where you're just listening for God's response to your personal reflections and prayers. Of course, the key to all of this is to pick the right scriptural passage. So I happened to be a member of the Good Book Club, which is reading through the book of John in 50 days. So after I read the definitions of racist and anti-racist in the book, I sat down to meditate on the familiar story in John 2 of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And the words that quickly popped out at me was Jesus' response to his mother Mary when she came to him and told him that the wedding party was running out of wine. He said to her in John 2.4, woman, what does this have to do with me? And I immediately knew that God was reaching out to me on this question of neutrality because that is the classic statement of indifference. That is what I say to an oppressed party every time I sit on the bench. What does your issue have to do with me? So I eagerly read on, thinking that Mary's response will add further enlightenment on this topic. But she seemed to ignore her son completely, turn to the servants and say, just do what he tells you to do, assuming that Jesus is going to help out the wedding party, which of course 
he does. Now, when I first read that passage, I didn't think that Mary's response completely answered my question on neutrality. I've come to think differently, as you'll hear about in a moment. But at the time, I didn't think so, because here was a situation where it didn't cost much for Jesus to help out the bride and the groom. And if it doesn't cost much to stand up to bigotry, I'm going to expect that a person who is at least trying to move from mostly racist acts to only anti-racist ones is going to stand up, is going to be an anti-racist. For it's fear of the consequences that usually keeps people in their seats. And no offense to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but there is something to fear besides fear itself. When Bonhoeffer stood up against Nazism, Hitler hung him. Because Colin Kaepernick knelt down during the national anthem to protest police brutality, he lost his job. Greta Thornburg speaking out on climate change has led to personal abusive attacks against her looks and speech patterns, statements that would have gotten my mouth washed out with soap when I was a kid. So I was really looking for God to speak to those situations, situations where there was a cost to being an anti-racist, where I could see somebody wanting to sit this one out. Well, I recently read a book by Dallas Willard on hearing God. And he said that when he doesn't immediately hear a response from God during his prayer time, he will go about his normal everyday business hoping to hear from God in another context, such as a conversation with another person, something he might read later on in the day, or an event he might witness. So I decided to take his advice. And one of the habits that I've recently gotten into is listening to a podcast on Christian ethics from Biola University called The Table Audio during my morning commute. And so I don't know if it was the same morning or the next, but I tuned into their podcast on global indifference, which began with a retelling of the Pond case from a 1972 paper by Peter Singer entitled Famine, Influence, and Morality. And it went something like this. A woman is walking to the train station in the morning to get to work. And she passes by a pond. And she sees a child in that pond struggling, obviously in danger of drowning. And she looks around. And she doesn't see any other adults. So she knows that if she doesn't go in to rescue that child, that child is likely to die. But then she thinks about it for a moment. And she says, you know, I have a job interview this morning, which is a, a promotion that I've been really looking forward to. It comes with a really big raise. And if I go in and save that child, I'm going to miss my train, and therefore the job interview, and likely this promotion. Also, this is a really expensive outfit I'm wearing and shoes. And if I go in to that pond to save that child, this outfit is just going to be ruined. And so she walks right on by, forgetting about the child. And the child dies. As soon as I heard that story, 
my mind immediately went to today's text of emphasis. And I knew that in this story, God had answered my question on neutrality. And I felt like David before Nathan the prophet. Most people, when reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, focus on the Good Samaritan. But when I am silent in the face of bigotry, I am not the Good Samaritan, am I? No, I am the religious leaders that walked on by. The priest and the Levite in the story are not the ones that cause the actual harm to the man lying on the side of the road. Just like I am not the one who said the racist idea or wrote the racist policy. But just like I immediately condemned that woman for choosing her promotion over the life of that child, Jesus condemns the priest and the Levite for choosing to avoid the possible cost to themselves over the possibility of saving that man's life. What costs? Well, first, there is the social costs of potential temporary religious uncleanliness if they were to touch a corpse if that man were to die. Second, there is the economic costs of taking care of the man. We know it costs at least two days' wages, two denarii, could possibly cost more. And then third, there's the real chance of physical harm to those men if those robbers were to come back. I mean, we don't know how dangerous this road is. This could be a situation where standing around for any amount of time could get you killed. So what God was telling me in this story is that, yeah, he realized that there could be real social, economic, and physical costs to being an anti-racist. But those costs paled in comparison to the suffering that will persist if I stay silent in the face of oppression. As Desmond Tutu aptly said, if an elephant has his foot on the tail of a mouse, and you say that you're neutral, the mouse is not going to appreciate your neutrality. As a woman living in a patriarchal society, I can attest to the truth of Desmond Tutu's words, for I, on occasion, have been that mouse. And in fact, I am forever grateful to two men that I have never met. But because they dare to defy convention and become anti-sexist, my sense of self was forever changed. For when I was in eighth grade, I had a female English teacher who told her class that when you're writing a paper that includes a member of a profession that could be male or female, unless that occupation is predominantly female, such as teachers or secretaries, you should always use the pronoun he when referring to a member of that profession. And the readers are going to automatically know in those circumstances that he could also mean she. Well, fast forward six years, and I am a sophomore at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, one of the Seven Sisters, and I am taking an economics class. And I'm reading my economics textbook by Baumann Blinder, two male economists in my dorm room. And in particular, I'm reading one of their sidebars. And in their sidebar is an example of a female economist. I literally stopped and said out loud, that is impossible. A female cannot be an economist. 
Here I was, a female at a woman's college studying economics, but I couldn't believe that I could be an economist. A teacher, maybe, but not an economist. For you see, my eighth grade teacher was wrong. People did not automatically assume that he could also mean she. And so when I constantly saw only he's for doctors, lawyers, and economists, and only she's for teachers, secretaries, and stewardesses, as a female, I'm going to think that, that is, those latter professions are all that I could be. But because of that textbook, because of those men daring to be anti-sexist, I went on to major in math and economics, and my life was never the same. Now, I was not dying on the side of the road, but neither was I fully alive. And those men stopped and told me that I could be whatever God gave me the talents to be, that my possibilities were not defined by my sex. Mr. Kendi, in his book, speaks of his own experiences internalizing racist ideas without even knowing it and allowing them to shape his image of who he was as a black man and what he could be. God wants all of his image bearers to reach their full potential, to be who he created them to be. And bigotry of any kind prevents that. And I kid you not, it was as if a floodgate had opened up in my brain because verse after verse kept pouring in each one speaking harsh words against people who had the power to make a difference but chose to remain silent. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, for instance, we find the son of man cursing and casting out the goats, not because the goats caused anyone to be thirsty or hungry or without clothes or in prison or far from home, but because they remain indifferent to their suffering, they chose not to get involved. Similarly, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is told by God that if God tells the prophet to warn Israel that the path that they are on is leading to their destruction, and the prophet chooses not to warn Israel, then the God, God is going to hold Ezekiel, as well as Israel, responsible for Israel's destruction. But if the prophet warns Israel, and Israel just ignores him, goes on their merry way, then their sin is only on them. Now again, Ezekiel didn't cause Israel to sin, but he's still condemned if he doesn't warn Israel about the path that they are on. Now this verse is very interesting because it shows that God not only cares about the mouse, but also the elephant. That he condemns neutrality, not only for the sake of the oppressed, but the, also the oppressor. For if I speak up against racist ideas or policies, I might actually change the mind of the person who said the racist idea or wrote the racist policy. Now, I may not, but just the chance that I could is enough for God to demand that I speak up. For he so loves the world that he doesn't want anyone to perish. Now, it was at this point that I knew that God agreed with Mr. Kendi. 
that there was no such thing as a neutral, not racist category, that you were either a racist or an anti-racist, and neutrality put you squarely in the racist camp. But God wasn't done with me yet. Because when I was speaking to Todd after morning service a few days ago about this very passage, the words to the Laodicean church suddenly popped into my head. In Revelation, God tells the church of Laodicea that I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out. Now, these words were very troubling at first for me because I could see why God would want me to be hot rather than lukewarm, you know, an anti-racist rather than neutral, but cold? Would he really want me to be the unseen robber in this story? But then it hit me why. Nobody reading the story is going to mistake the actions of the robbers for the actions of God, but not so the actions of those religious men. When those men who are supposed to represent God see the man lying on the side of the road near dead and keep walking on by, people are going to start to wonder, does God care about that man's suffering? But God does care because he expected those men to stop. Similarly, as a Christian, I am telling you that I am the hands and feet of Christ. So if I stay silent in the face of bigotry, people are going to start to wonder, does God care that some of his image bearers are made to feel inferior because of their race, their gender, their sexuality, or their ethnicity? Or does God care that some of them can't reach their full potential because of the inequalities that exist in this world? But God does care because he expected me to speak up. And because I didn't speak up, he wants to vomit me up. For you see, when I stay neutral and call myself not racist, I am trying to maintain the appearance of righteousness while allowing unrighteousness to flourish. Why? Because I'm unwilling to pay the costs of truly following Christ. I want the resurrection without the cross. And that thought brought me right back to the wedding in Cana. For the reason that Jesus gave his mother that the lack of wine was not his concern, it was because his hour had not yet come, which of course brings to mind the hour of his death on the cross. And of course, the whole feast itself brings to mind that final feast, you know, where all the races and nations and peoples and languages are going to come together to celebrate the wedding between Jesus the groom and his church, the bride. But if you think about it, humanity doesn't deserve that feast. In the beginning, God created a perfect world, handed to us on a silver platter, and we screwed up. So he could have justifiably said to us, what does your mess have to do with me? But instead, he became our good Samaritan. He saw us lying on the side of the road near dead 
And instead of walking right on by, like he justifiably could have done, he stopped and had compassion on us. And like the Samaritan in the story, was willing to pay the innkeeper whatever it cost to make sure that that man was well cared for. Jesus came down from heaven and was willing to pay whatever it costs to give us eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus became our good Samaritan, was willing to pay the ultimate cost of death on the cross so that we could someday enjoy that wedding feast with him. And if you recall, what was Mary's response to Jesus at the wedding? It was to turn to the servants, us, and tell us to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Well, what is Jesus telling us to do in the parable of the Good Samaritans right there in verse 37? Go and do likewise. So just like Jesus was our Good Samaritan, we are being asked to be the Good Samaritan to others. So when we see somebody near dead or struggling to keep themselves from drowning because of a racist idea or policy or any form of bigotry for that matter, we are to stop, have compassion, and be willing to pay whatever it costs to make sure that that person has abundant life. And that means that we cannot sit on the sidelines. We must be anti-racist. We must fight the current social, economic, and political powers that be to prevent any idea or policy that views others as not fully human and that prevents others from not fully flourishing, from being truly alive. A few days ago, I was walking to the train station in the morning. And I usually do that work, or walk, I should say, in silence and solitude. But something prompted me to turn on the table audio podcast again. And this time, I tuned into their podcast on saints, martyrs, icons, and heroes. And during that podcast, the host, Emin Rosa, brought up the 21 Libyan martyrs, depicted here in an icon by Nicola Sarik. For those of you who are not aware, in February of 2015, the Islamic State kidnapped and killed 21 Libyan Christian construction workers who were later recognized as saints by the Coptic Orthodox Church. Now, what is significant about this trage tragedy uh, for our discussion today is that only 20 of those workers were Coptic Christians at the time they were captured, shown here with their eyes toward Christ after they were beheaded for refusing to denounce their faith. The 21st worker, Matthew Ayariga from Ghana, shown here with his eyes toward the viewer, was supposedly not a Christian at the time he was kidnapped with the rest. But when the terrorists came, came to him and told him to reject Christ, he reportedly said, my God is their God. I am a Christian, and I am like them. 
Now, hopefully it will never be this dramatic. But those of us in the room who are white or male or heterosexual or not Hispanic have a choice like Matthew when faced with a racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Hispanic idea or policy. We can remain quiet, therefore rejecting Christ to save our own life. Or we can look up to Christ and state, I am a Christian and I am like them. Today, let us pray to God for the courage and the strength to always look up. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.